So my name is Tani Rodriguez, and I am a first-year psychology student in the PhD program at UCR, more specifically in the developmental psychology program. And my research focuses on low-income minority older adults and helping them increase their cognitive and functional abilities via engagement in learning new skills to prevent or even reverse cognitive decline. All right, and I'm Leah Ferguson. Um, I'm also a first-year graduate student in the um, developmental psychology area um, at UCR, um, also in the Cala lab, which is um, looking at like cognitive aging and learning across the lifespan. Um, our interests are pretty aligned, Tanya and I, um, but I'm leaning more into learning based off of necessity. Um, so we have some overlap there, if you picture a Venn diagram, um, but I'm also interested in other underserved communities or marginalized communities, like um, uh, returning citizens from being institutionalized, um, people with disabilities, um, and how learning out of necessity affects cognition, um, improving it, how it affects cognitive load, that kind of stuff. Um, Additionally, in our lab in general, we do more neuroscience um, stuff. So uh, we look at the brain and EEG um, brain waves and how attention is affected by categorization um, and how people find what they're looking for and how that might inform learning research. Um, so, yeah, we do a lot in our lab. Um, and our main advisor, the main person in charge of the lab is Rachel Wu, who started all of this. So we can talk more about her as well. So I'm curious, uh, Tanya mentioned uh, that you're sort of under the umbrella of developmental psychology. And I feel like developmental psychology focuses a lot, and this could just be the layperson's view, focuses a lot on how children develop, because the obviously the brains are so malleable at that time. So they do a lot of focus on that. But it's interesting, it sounds like you're working with adults already, or do you mix it all? How do the age groups match up at your lab? Yeah, so you're right. A lot of the developmental area focuses on infancy and childhood and how we develop yeah. as children. So the aspect that I'm focusing on is the cognitive development and decline across the human lifespan in, with a particular focus on older adults. And actually, uh, the principal investigator of the lab, Dr. Rachel Wu, as Leah mentioned, applies this idea that the same components that help uh, children learn during their childhood can also benefit learning in older adulthood. So we're applying the research with children to older adults in the area of learning. Is the matchup in, in what you've seen so far, either what you've studied or what you've researched yourself, do the same things that work for kids in uh, approaching new things, learning things and holding onto those things in their brain do those exact same strategies map over to adults and older adults or are there things where some things seem to work for kids and they don't work for older people? Right. So one thing that comes to mind is um, in that research, like children is usually new things. They're not relying so much on prior knowledge because everything that's incoming is pretty new, right? Right. And when it comes to older adults, uh, they have a lot of previous knowledge. So a lot of the things that they do on a daily basis, so things that they learn, they base it on the previous knowledge that they have already acquired. So one thing uh, that we can think of when it comes to learning is that a lot of the same things do apply to older adults. Um, it, the, one, the main thing here is that there's a stigma that older adults can't learn new skills, that they're too old to learn something new. Right. Uh, which is a pure stigma because very feasible, especially like with the research in the lab that has been done with learning interventions, it has shown that they are, it's very feasible to learn new abilities. And, but we still need those same components that we would need as if we were children. So for example, having an environment that allows you to make mistakes, instead of putting that whole pressure of you need to uh, be perfect, uh, being able to be flexible, right? With uh, learning, and being encouraged to learn new skills. Usually with children, you're always like, oh yeah, you need to learn new skills and you need to learn how to do this and you need to learn how to do that. And you're very encouraging towards like children. Yeah. But when, old, when it comes to older adults, it's like, oh, well, you should already know whatever you need in life. <laughs> you should have already acquired the skills that you need. 
but that's not necessarily true, right? Especially when it comes uh, to older adults who maybe still be working, they need to learn technology as it advances and things like that. Um, and it also helps their cognitive abilities. So I think it's super important to stay cognitively engaged and stimulate our brains uh, to make new neural connections and in, use that as a way to uh, boost our cognitive growth and boost our functional abilities as well. I, th I find it so interesting, those things you mentioned that help kids also help adults. And the fact that now you're saying kind of cultural, in their context, not talking about a, uh, an ethnic culture or a national culture, but saying in the context of their lives, those things could totally be lacking or they could tell themselves th that they're lacking. I mean, they could tell themselves they can't learn anything new and tell themselves it's all on them. Do you feel like the things you're studying, where do you, what do you hope happens with the research? Because I feel like some of it could be systemic. It could kind of tell employers and tell society in general, or tell people who care for older people, these people are capable of learning things and you could adjust their mindsets. Or is it a lot of trying to adjust the individual learner's mindset if they're being held back either by the things around them or their own thinking about it? I think that it's both, right? Okay. So starting with like the individual themselves, trying to help them realize you can learn new skills if you set your mind to it. You're not too old to learn new skills. And you mentioned like mindset, right? So having a growth mindset and believing in yourself abilities, you know, versus that fixed mindset of, oh, I, I can't learn this. So starting there and also motivating them to learn new abilities mm -hmm. and uh, by basing it on their interests, whether it be like Leah said, out of necessity or out of fun, uh, they have to be abilities that are somehow challenging to them, um, that pose a challenge on their brain, right? To be able to be cognitively stimulating, uh, but also giving them that um, self-belief in their abilities yeah. and also like pushing towards society to have more opportunities for older adults to engage in novel skill learning and encouraging them and kind of getting rid of this stereotype that they can't learn new abilities. So increasing more opportunities for them that are accessible. Um, in particular, I my focus is minorities, so racial and ethnic minority individuals with low income. And you need money many times to learn new skills and yeah. you need access to certain tools. So another big aspect of what my research is trying to do as big impact is providing more free resources for minority, low-income, older adults, so that they're able to take these opportunities and actually engage in learning new abilities. Do you find that if, so if, I feel like there's, there's economic classes and racial groups, and sometimes they cross over economically and sometimes they don't. Do you find if you're looking at people who may be of, of lower means, do you find there's differences depending on their ethnic culture they grew up with about their approach to these learning new things? Or does it feel like sort of the economic circumstances make them all together in one group? So kind of when you look at these marginalized groups, are they split up in your head or they kind of all fall into this umbrella of people struggling in one way or another economically? Right. So in my head and the way I look at it in my research is this overlap between low income and being a racial and ethnic minority, okay. because a large amount, like a, a large group of the population who are low income belongs to the minority group. So I'm doing the overlap. Okay. But when it comes to specifically just being low income or specifically being a minority, I feel that the biggest piece of being low income is having that lack of financial stability to be able to buy the tools that you might need for learning new skills. And if you have a cognitive load already or like this stress of, uh, oh, I, I need to pay the bills, I need to put food on my table, you're not really going to be thinking about, oh, I need to learn new skills. <laughs> right. It's going to take up that cognitive space already with what you're dealing with and the stressors you're dealing with on your daily life. And then the aspect of being a minority, I feel that there is some differences, right, between being, let's say, a white uh, older adult versus a black or Latinx older adult because of the discrimination and the stereotypes. Uh, since there are studies that have shown that in school, the teachers themselves can have a bias towards Latinx or black students. Yeah. And that, oh, well, they're probably not good at math or they're probably not good at doing this. And they themselves kind of internalize this uh, biases that they're getting from their own teachers. So there's a lot of stigma around just being a minority on its own that might make them feel like less able to learn new abilities. 
in comparison to other um, racial groups. Is there any way, uh, I feel like it gets, so I'll, so a, an argument that doesn't hold a lot of sway with me, but may or may not. So there have been, there have been um, a number of people in who talk about uh, the black American community and say, well, this is a cultural problem that we aren't making as much money that we don't do as well. And I, I think the argument against that is the economic argument that if you have a group of people who historically in a certain company who may or may not in a country look a certain way, but they've also been economically underprivileged and discriminated against because of the people outside that group, like it all gets complicated in there. Um, is are, Do you deal with any of that in there trying to tease out, are there cultural values these people have inside the context of how they grew up and who they grew up with versus versus just outside forces. So in other words, kind of criticizing that argument, I, we hear sometimes from inside and outside communities that, well, this is an internal problem. We don't value education. We don't say we can do this. That's the problem. Yes, I think very much is this historically, you know, discrimination and racism that has been going on yeah. that causes systemic issues and gives them um, this problem of lack of access to resources. And for example, it's not a, it, we cannot blame them or like say like, oh, well, why don't you look for more health opportunities? Right, right? well, They're, people can blame them, but they shouldn't. <laughs> shouldn't, exactly, yeah. we shouldn't. Uh, because if we think of health healthcare access and how that's very limited for them, how how's that on them, right? Um, yeah. and Overall, like promoting higher education, for example, which can be another factor to protect against cognitive decline in older adulthood. Uh, promoting higher education is not as promoted with minority populations. Uh, I myself am Latina, right? And I didn't know a lot of things about higher education. If it wasn't for uh, several mentors in my life that helped me get to where I am today, I wouldn't have known anything. And just the other day, I think it was actually yesterday, I was talking to another Latino student and he had no idea what it meant to be a PhD student or to get a higher education or how to get there. So he he didn't even know if he could even apply to a graduate program or what it's required because it's not as promoted for some yeah. reason among minority populations. So I very much think it's really a systemic issue. And the same racism or discrimination that happens when it comes to accessing resources, it's coming from the people outside and rearing those uh, stereotypes into the group. And sometimes internalizing happens where we uh, kind of build this self-fulfilling processy. And I think that's where the issue life the most and not so much of oh well it's because they don't think they can do it that's why they don't do it i think it's not promoted or encouraged enough uh to make them believe in themselves that they can do it or provide them with the resources that they would need to help them get to where they want to be if if you're if you're looking at if if maybe you can tell me more about the exact kind of research you're doing and what it looks like the kind of modalities you use because i'm curious about if you identify whether there are physical things that happen to the brain at an early age if you're discouraged that make it harder to learn something later. So are there physical elements, genetic elements, societal elements, and then most importantly, sort of individual psychological things? Are there, is it ever possible to tease that all out? Yes. So in my particular research, run, I haven't been able to run any participants. As I said, I'm a first year student still <laughs> okay. in the works, but it would consist of low-income minority older adults and what we're actually one of my first studies is going to focus on identifying those psychological and physical barriers mm -hmm. to learning new skills, which can entail anything from just outside resource, lack of resources like transportation, um, having a lower education, um, having access to healthcare, their financial resources, and things like that. So those are very like outside forces, right, that might um, be in the way of learning new skills, yeah. and the psychological barriers that come with that, like motivation, having a lack of motivation, or having a very fixed mindset of, oh, I can't learn new abilities, and just having overall a lack of self-belief in their own abilities. So those are the kinds of barriers that I'm trying to look at. I'm not doing much work with like genetic type of uh, situations or 
not <laughs> sure. much biology um, in there, but definitely what are the forces driving them to learn or not learn new skills? And then the goal of that first study of just, it's gonna be interviewing minority older adults who have a low income to try and get more at what are the barriers that maybe we're not perceiving, uh, but they are perceiving for themselves when it comes to learning something new. And what are the kind of skills that they would be interested in learning? And based on this information that we plan on collecting, then we can create a learning intervention that's going to be fitted for them because it's it's not the same as training a learning intervention that is for white older adults who have a higher income because they have more resources and maybe they're more likely to be retired they have the opportunity to be retired in yeah. comparison to maybe a minority older adult who has low income and needs to still make money to provide food on the table is there um so uh, one of uh, looking at how different cultures or different families talk about education and consider it a possibility or not, there are some families and uh, that's, that did not go to college. They don't see necessarily the value of learning things because they struggle economically. Things are very utilitarian. And I feel like there is a privilege that comes with people who are middle class and up where it's easier to say, well, learning for learning's sake um, educating yourself because it's interesting, making yourself a more well-rounded person. When you look at your research, are you thinking mostly about kind of utilitarian economic ways in which people are learning skills for the workforce or that people in general could be more successful because they kind of learn that learning itself can be fun, learning itself can broaden your horizons, whatever that you know vague term means? Right. I think that for my research, what I'm going to encounter, it's learning out of necessity as okay. well. Uh, especially for, for example, Latinx minority older adults who maybe don't know how to speak English. That might be one thing that could come up, right? Like, oh, well, I would want to learn how to speak English. Right. But they maybe can't because they're working the entire day and they don't have the tools to be able to find like a class or something that helps them learn English with their schedule that they have, something flexible. So I feel like it's going to be a lot of it out of necessity yeah. uh, because that's the first thing that might come to their minds. If it, you know, if learning something new might be, well, I need to learn English because this will help me in my current job or it will help me get on a, another position somewhere else. So, but then we're also looking at maybe what are their interests of learning new skills? Maybe they would love to learn how to paint. And that's something that they've always wanted to do, but they just haven't had the time and haven't had the tools or the instructors to teach them how to do that. So I think there's going to be a bit of both aspects of learning out of necessity for utility purposes and learning out of fun for pure interest. Okay. Yeah, and I, I want to add here to the conversation that, like learning is a hundred percent a privilege, right? Um, there are so many people across the world that aren't provided the opportunity to just go to school in a structured format that we see in many westernized um, cultures. But um, it's a necessary privilege, right? Because we learn, yes, how to be a part of our um, thinking of proper words here, uh, how to be a part of our honestly capitalist society, right? We, yeah. we learn the things we need to learn to be a part of the workforce. Um, but we also learn really vital socialization skills um, as children. We learn give and take. We learn this is mine. This is yours. Oh, let's share. Um, and as we get older, because our research does focus on older adults, we lose that socialization as well. Um, think about once you retire or uh, once you hit a certain age, um, if you aren't living in a um, intergenerational household or multi-generational household, maybe you're living by yourself and your partner dies at 85, 80 years old or younger. Um, and it's really isolating. And our research really looks at, you know, as we get older and as we lose um, or remove ourselves maybe from opportunities that provide variety and novelty, um, even if it's socialization, what is that doing to our cognition as we age? Because as a society, as Western society, um, 
we expect to lose our cognitive capacities as we age. And the point of our research is to say, is to challenge that. Why is that the norm? Um, Is that the norm? Is that what our bodies like naturally should be doing? Or is this a um, outcome of how our, you know, our society is kind of structured? Um, And, you know, our research is challenging that. We're seeing huge cognitive improvements and huge jumps in functional independence in our participants who are a part of our learning interventions. And um, we're seeing also that aside from the executive function improvement, so the memory capacity and the inhibition and um, kind of like um, prioritizing um, tasks that we have them complete. Um, We're also seeing improvements in like their overall well-being and growth mindset. And that carries on for years when we follow up with our, with these participants. Um, So we're seeing, you know, changes in, the brain's abilities to do things, which was a question you asked earlier. Um, but we're also seeing changes in just their overall pers- uh, perspective of their capabilities. Um, and with Tanya's route, with looking, with trying to increase the access of these opportunities with her research, um, we're hoping to carry that over into um, non, you know, wealthy, educated, industrialized, rich, and uh, democratic sort of populations, those weird populations that most psychology research and STEM research is on. Um, And we're hoping to branch out and provide those opportunities to people who aren't necessarily the focus of research, even though they should be included at the table, you know, in these conversations. Um, There was another point I wanted to add. Oh, um, so because our research is on older adults, <laughs> I'm trying to answer some questions that you, that I wanted to answer previously. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we, um, so we haven't looked too much into the, like, like actually doing MRI or fMRI um, scans. We did once, but it's really expensive. Um, and with older adults, there's, um, some limitations. So if anyone has an implant, um, like a heart like a pacemaker or anything like that, they can't do fMRI. So it's really challenging to find participants, but there is a huge growing, like a growing body of research on um, black and Latinx um, youth into adolescence, into young adulthood. And the impacts that um, discrimination, racism, economic, um, systemic um, processes have on children's abilities to learn and continue to learn and the impacts it has on their telomeres. So like a really deep um, biological impact, it's literally shortening their lifespan. Um, And it's also um, some of Tanya's research also looks at allostatic load. So it's affecting their um, just ability to, and Tanya said this earlier, prioritize things that as a white person, we can prioritize, right? Like, oh, learning for the sake of learning. Like, we have that privilege, but um, other people don't. And um, constantly being uh, thrown with like microaggressions or <laughs> macroaggressions um, affects the the cognitive abilities to kind of um, switch between learning for the sake of learning. And I need to make money and put food on the table um, for my family because that's what I'm struggling with right now, because systemically right now, I'm not being supported in the capacity I should. So there are definitely a ton of barriers to the research. Um, and with aging research and with working with older adults, unfortunately, we're kind of at the tail end of that. But we're hoping that through our research and like spreading the word that um, we can kind of move it towards a preventative measure and work with younger adults or like middle-aged adults to kind of prevent the decline in cognition and um, functional independence as they age. Okay, that's it. (laughs) I I hope I answered, (laughs) clarified some things there. And I want Tanya to add as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Leah. I'll I'll add on to what she said, because it reminded me of this other piece of information. So like she said, there's a lot of stress that happens 
throughout their lifetime um, due to inequalities that they experience and disadvantage that they experience. And there's actually a framework by Forrester and colleagues that was published in 2019, which is called the Minority uh, Stress Framework. And this framework kind of helps explain the current disparities in cognitive and functional health that exist among minorities. Because if we do see that Latinx and Black individuals, for example, are at higher risk of cognitive decline. So that, that's what we're trying to get at, decreasing also that disparity through learning new skills. If we can get them to engage in novel skill learning and provide them with the resources that they need, maybe we can, that can be a way to lower that uh, disparity that is currently in place because of that lifetime of inequality and, and disadvantage that they experience. Um, so I sort of, re I mean, obviously within and outside of these communities, sometimes there's some uh, individual blaming of either the collective or the individuals inside that community and saying, this is your fault. I cannot think, well, I'm sure I could think of other groups who get more blame and who society is actually focused on inflicting uh, pain, shame, guilt, and making them suffer as uh, prison prisoners in the federal and state and local prison system. Um, could you talk a little bit about, so I think people, the sensitivity to all kinds of people uh, in normal life, even people who are not like you, really get scratched to zero when it comes to convicts. So maybe Leah, you could talk a little bit about what kind of research you've done about recidivism in prisoners. The big fear is always, well, we lock you up. When you come out, you commit crimes again. And obviously there's a perfectly reasonable argument. Well, they went in there because of a life that led to this and nothing in prison allows them to break out of that. And so when they come out, of course, they return to it. So Tell me what kind of research or what kind of things you've looked at when it comes to learning, the learning by people before they wind up in prison, and then the learning available to them in prison, and then what, you know, actually can happen when they come out. I know that's a huge thing, but I know you've looked at recidivism, so I'm super curious, because I think that group in general, I think America is very much focused on punishing people who've broken the law, and not so much about, there are other countries that are much better about helping people change when they get out. And I don't think America is probably very good at that. Yeah. Yeah. Our system is not built on rehabilitation. <laughs> it's, it's built right. on um, punishment and yeah. um, not necessarily punishing people for crimes they cr committed. So uh, we could get really political <laughs> with this conversation. Um, the gist of what, and these are my views and backed by science as well in research, but um, not supported by everyone. Okay. Um, <laughs> but um, our, our prison system um, is really unethical um, and uh, punishes people in extreme ways and people who are already systemically disadvantaged. Um, so specifically people of color um, and people with low income or highly impoverished communities. Um, in terms of recidivism, it's just a cycle. So uh, I'm sure you've heard of the school to prison pipeline. Yeah. Um, and Tanya, you know, alluded to this earlier, or, you know, straight up said it actually, is that teachers have biases. Um, and those biases affect how students perceive themselves and perceive their capabilities as human beings, right? So um, if teachers are conveying this bias of, um, and there's been plenty of research on this as well. Like as a black student, um, teachers are looking for uh, troublemakers, quote unquote, um, in black students. They pay more attention to students who are um, black and discipline them more harshly for smaller things than they do white peers. And um, there have been some longitudinal studies on the impact, many actually, that this has, um, and it has been deemed to the school to prison pipeline, where yeah. this ongoing, continuous micro and macro aggressions towards students of color um, has on the communities and also the individual. Um, and so if you are constantly being told that you are nothing but trouble, that you are constantly getting in trouble um, for things that are really small. Um, if you feel like you do not belong in a space, 
um, and you're being told that or shown that over and over and over again, you're going to start believing it. You're going to start internalizing that. And if people around you who look like you are also experiencing the same things, that's a like community narrative that you're being told by um, people who have a lot more privilege than you. And if you're constantly being pushed down or pulled down um, or like told that you can't do things, it, it can really affect your feelings of um, like self-efficacy, right? And what you can do. And uh, we throw around the term resilience a lot um, as a culture um, in the United States. Um, And resilience can be a protective factor, but it's also just um, kind of a necessity in some communities um, to where if you want to see a change, um, like if your parents are telling you, you have to go to school, I'm doing all these things so that you can have a better life than we had. Um, then you have to kind of be resilient because you have people backing you up, but imagine you don't have anyone around you or your parents go to prison or your brother goes to prison or your sister goes to prison and all of your friends are going to prison. Um, and you're just kind of in that community out of necessity, out of protect, out of protection and part of a culture that necessarily didn't, you didn't choose, um, as a community, as a, as a people, as a person, um, then it's just kind of inevitable. And our system is designed to do that. Um, it's designed to keep people down. Um, and there are some wonderful programs that are trying to change that or trying to help people once they get out of prison. Um, And with COVID, um, there's actually been a huge wave of long-term stay um, or sentencing uh, individuals who are getting out during COVID. um, And they've been in prison for 30, 40, 50 years. And so in terms of the learning research, um, we're seeing a huge shift in um, kind of these people's like economic... uh, trying to think of the right words for this their economic standing right because they've been in prison since like 1980 and now it's 2020 technology has changed drastically the way the world and workforce um, works has changed drastically maybe the community that they grew up in has changed drastically Um, expectations for people have changed drastically and now you're you know 50 or 60 years old and you um have a stigma of being imprisoned for whatever your sentencing was for. Um, And maybe you're a person of color and um, your family doesn't have money to support you or your parents are gone or, and you don't have children. And so all of these things are stacking and stacking and stacking. Um, And there's been a few publications during the pandemic that have come out on um, how people are coping or how people are finding jobs during the pandemic. And, um, you know, it was all over the news that people who are disadvantaged were the ones who were forced to keep working um, during like 2020. And also the people who are dying from COVID the most because they didn't have the ability to stay home. And so um, there's a lot of overlap in um, like older adult marginalized communities, like we were talking about earlier and learning and, um, and the ones in prison as well. The, the numbers of older convicts, because again, as COVID popped up, we cared. I mean, America cared the least about prisons. I mean, who cares? They're convicts. So we don't need to worry about PP. We don't need to worry about quarantine yeah. care. Yeah. And there, uh, like our prison systems are already highly um, impacted. They're over. Um, yeah. So, um, so many inmates died uh, during and, and are still dying because they aren't um, able to get vaccinated. You know, um, our prison system is, majority privatized now, um, unfortunately as well. So there's a huge like systemic issue there, um, that (laughs) is, um, in need of drastic change and overhaul uh, along with a lot of other things in our country. But, um, and I don't have the answers to those. Okay. I was going to ask this one. (laughs) I mean, obviously the, the, um, uh, the ex, the ex convict situation is so Mm -hmm. much 
rougher than a person who fits into society, but is poor or fits into society of a marginalized community, but they're still, they having the added thing of running through the criminal justice system and then having all the things that come out after that, having your freedom taken away. Uh, So wait, so this is very dark. So we can't talk about, (laughs) we can't give them any painting. I mean, what, so the kind of trauma that happens to you in a community where you feel like you kind of don't have anything open to you. So crime is the best way to make money. The crime is the best way to help your family. Crime is the only, or, or you see your, or nihilist nihilism. There's no point to this. I can't make anything of myself anyway. So I might as well have fun while I'm here. Then they get into the system and then that's traumatizing. So you got these two periods of trauma and then they come out and they get, then there's the extra abuse of people are suspicious of me. There are specifically laws preventing me from getting certain jobs or, and certainly companies don't want to hire me. There's like no end to this. And I understand that even if a person committed a terrible crime, there's no end to this punishment and mercy and justice are supposed to sort of be evenly balanced and it's heavy on the justice and not so much on the mercy for this person who is supposedly now they are free. So they, they have been freed. They're on parole or they are, they've fully done their sentence. Now they can re-enter society. What are their, what is their psychology like? And what is the hope they're learning how they get back in? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, you don't have to answer have- it. Cause obviously, <laughs> no. but, well, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I do have like some anecdotal. I interviewed um, family members and individuals who um, family members of previously incarcerated um, individuals and also like those previously incarcerated individuals themselves. Um, obviously incarcerated individuals are a protected community um, in research. They don't have rights so to speak um they don't have rights essentially they don't have the right to consent on their own like there's a process of um uh, permissions basically if you want to work with those and um I did this research as an undergraduate um so I did not have the means to get those permissions but there are wonderful people doing research right now um and lots of dissertations for example that have looked at this but um oh as in you are not they do not have the right to tell you you can gather information from them you have to get it from some authority you have to get permission from the um prison first and then um even after they're out if there's no 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 no, okay we're talking about prisoner okay yeah like act like actively incarcerated um but post-incarceration like they're you know, they can give their own consent. So okay, that's gotcha. the, the information I have. So um, so there's a lot you have to deal with. One, um, families who, so families of incarcerated individuals, um, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but you have to support your family member while they're incarcerated. Um, anything that, like, you have to send them money to buy things, to buy food, to buy clothes, to buy toothpaste and toothbrushes and stuff like that. Um, So um, if you are able to do that as a family, that's great, but that's a huge financial burden on top of um, uh, legal fees and um, any other fees that you have to pay. Um, So some of that is rolling over as people are released. Um, You don't get that money back. the money that you send to your family member uh, when they're incarcerated, like if there's money left over, you don't get to walk out with that in your pocket. That's now the prison's money, first of all. So there's a huge financial burden while the family member is in prison. And then when they come out, um, like you said, there's a huge stigma against people with um, a record, essentially, no matter what the crime was. And you apply for a job, they ask if you have a felony um, and you're, supposed to be honest about that but when you are honest about that you face discrimination and um even though they can say it's for another reason right um but so some people have um that i spoke with did link up with um nonprofits um or found a mentor who um, was able to kind of help them figure out their next steps. Um, so one person that I spoke with for a very long time, they, um, got out of prison. I think they spent 10 years in prison for, um, drunk driving, um, or, um, drugged driving. They were under the influence of multiple things. Um, and they went to prison for a long time for that. And when they came out, 
they uh, worked with some nonprofits um, and eventually went and got their degree as a social worker and are now working with the people who went through the same thing that he went through um, to kind of try and boost them. So there are individuals who have experienced the same thing and are kind of taking on mentorship roles or are taking on mentorship roles, not kind of, um, they are, and they're working with nonprofits to kind of um, reduce the cycle, right, of um, kind of like helplessness and feeling like um, your own country isn't there to support you um, because it's not. Um, and you were a very individualized nation overall. So you kind of just have to figure it out on your own. So there are individuals and nonprofits who are there to support you. Um, there are federal um, programs, you know, to help you get on your feet. Um, but they have a very long wait list. They're hugely um, under um, underserved and underfunded. Um, and they aren't able to provide quality assistance. Um, same thing with finding a job and stuff like that. So, so even if somebody um, gets out and they want to try, so let's say they've got the right mindset, they've got that resilient mm-hmm. mindset, they're full of grit, they want to they want to turn things around, they feel some hope. Um, that doesn't mean that they can get into any of these programs that can help. Yeah. Um, and even if they want to go to school, like they, they have their high school diploma, you can get, you can go to college in prison. Um, Your options are limited. Usually it's just fulfilling G um, G, like general ed fulfillments. um, And you can continue that, but usually they're um, private schools um, that are, you know, offering this to inmates. And then when they get out, they're hoping that they'll send them tons of money and become students again. Um, (laughs) But, um, and sometimes there are community colleges that are there. So it it really depends on what part of the country you're in, what the prison is, like what, how the system, there's no consistency is the point. Um, There are a decent amount now of um, scholarships that um, students can apply for if they want to go to undergrad. Um, you can apply for scholarships as a, um, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the term that UCR uses for the scholarship, but I can't remember it. So but basically, if you uh, were previously incarcerated and you're now uh, wanting to go to school, there are scholarships for that. And those are great. Um, but if you think of this, <laughs> the ratio of people who probably want to go to college and can afford it need those scholarships compared to the availability availability of those scholarships. It's um, disproportionate. But so there are systems in place. Um, some of them are better than others, but because the systems are limited, it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> um, and I think that's where the overlap is with Tanya and I's research is that there are so many barriers that you have to break through and you can start with a thousand people in front of one barrier. And then as you picture people going over the barriers and overcoming them and overcoming them and overcoming them, once you reach that finish line, let's say getting a PhD and becoming a professor, there's one or two people out of thousands you know, so that's yeah. like this people just fall through because they aren't supported along the way because we don't have systems in place to help people and to support them because you have to figure it out on your own or um, in academia, it's not very diverse. So you don't have the mentorship and the represent, represent, uh, representability, like t- to say like, oh my gosh, like I have my mentor who's in this place and they did it. And there's so many other people who are like that. Like I can do that too. Um, so there's, you know, there's a whole issue of um, being represented in an area where you'd like to be as well. So it's all very idealistic. Um, and when you break it down, there's a ton of, ton of barriers that um, I think research researchers want to have answers to, and maybe they do have answers, but then it's a matter of funding and the government has to be willing to do it too. Um, and working with policymakers, and that's a whole nother hurdle. I mean, again, as a, as a lay person, so I haven't studied it closely, but looking out at the common culture and having read for many years, looking at America's treatment of people through the prison system, just as you've said, this, we are a very individualized country as opposed to collectivist. We do not 
take responsibility for the people who commit a crime. So you have the freedom to do whatever you want, hypothetically, if you have all the means you need. And then if you choose to commit a crime, that was your choice. And now if we catch you and we can convict you, we're going to send you to prison. Your whole life in prison also financially sounds like, well, that's a responsibility of you and your family to figure that out. And then when you get out, well, that's a responsibility of you and your family to figure that all out. And maybe that works on an individual blame level. So we feel good because a person has taken quote unquote responsibility for their choices. But as far as good for a community who comes out and then maybe has nothing else to do, but again, commit crimes or whatever it is, it just doesn't seem like a good collectivist idea, but I don't know. Yeah. And I do want to clarify that not everyone who is sent to prison has actually committed a crime as well. Um, and that's another topic. No, no, I'm sure everyone <laughs> in jail and prison who's been convicted of anything, they they all did what the prosecutor, the judge, and the cop said they did. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. That's definitely true. Okay, <laughs> right. <probably. laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, but let's not, you know, I don't, and forget, <laughs> we won't get into that too much. Yeah, but... <laughs> forget on, on wrongful yeah. conviction. As you pointed yeah. out, the differences between depending on how much money you have or not, whether a thing you get is a felony or a misdemeanor, or you simply don't go to jail at all for it is often yeah. a matter of money. It's where you live. It's how much money you have. It's the people, you know, that determines whether what you, you get like. a felony yeah. or you get nothing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. So, Wait, so you made me feel really bad. Come on. Where is the hope? So we're thinking about neuroplasticity of people mm-hmm. who have had their brains absolutely squished by the system and poverty and whatever role models around them throughout their life. And then they pop out the other side. They live through prison. Um, Where is the the hope? I don't, what do we, what do we hope for them when it comes to Uh, learning about being able to take their life in a different way and being supported to do that? Yeah. So that's definitely more leaning into sociology. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. um, Which I, I also very much like, um, but I haven't had the opportunity to work with many sociologists right now. But um, in terms of what we hope with our research, mm-hmm. um, it one, it is a matter of hope, right? You know, we want to spread the word that, you know, this this picture of aging that we have where you slowly forget things over time, um, like dementia kicks in or you can't remember things yeah. and you lose your ability to really function on your own and you rely on many people around you. Um, it's not, and, and the, the people living to be 105 and like are, you know, living life, like they're still 55 or 60. Those are, those are rare, right? Those are yeah. special cases, but it really shouldn't be. Um, you know, we have the blue zones and Loma Linda out here in Southern California is one of those. Um, uh, and so there's several blue zones where these like rare populations of people living to be, um, exceptionally old in our right. standards, right. Over a hundred years old, um, and, and cognitively healthy, right. They're independent individual, like families or partners or whatever. And they're living on their own. They're still cooking their own meals. They're running and biking and, you know, all of these things. Um, we don't deal with the physical side of things too much. Um, but in terms of cognition, like you shouldn't be afraid of losing your functional abilities as a human being when you hit 80, 85, like you, or 90, 95. Those are things that you can maintain and even continue to improve when you get older. And that's what our research is. We aren't looking at maintenance of your cognitive capacities when you hit 65. We're improving cognitive capacities. People who start in our program and um, or our research that we published um, you know, right now has shown that by the end of our intervention, people have improved to the baseline cognitive abilities of that of like a 30 or 40 year old. Um, and the average age and baseline of our participants was about 80 um, years old. Um, we are in the process of publishing um, findings that have found that a year later, they're continuing to improve their functional capacities and are on par with our baseline measures of like 20 year olds. Um, so people are improving by like 
40, 50, 60 years. It's not across the board, you know, these are averages, um, but their cognitive abilities are continuing to improve just by challenging themselves for 12 weeks to learn something new. And we don't focus on mastery. You know, we aren't testing them. They aren't getting graded. It's about having, like Tanya mentioned, a forgiving environment, a supportive environment, one that works with you to foster um, really empowerment and um, confidence in yourself and just trying to challenge yourself to learn something new, whether it's painting, whether it's a new language, you know, even using an iPad, composing music, we have worked with that. Um, and, and so like, you can improve your cognition, and you can improve how your brain functions when you're 65, 75, 85, 95, 105 years old. So that's, think, that's our message. <laughs> okay, so I love that, because that kind of leads me to sort of a, a, kind of an overarching question that I wanted to be sure I asked, which was the difference between kind of uh, fact acquisition and retention, and then sort of utilitarian skill learning. But kind of what you're talking about there is, are, when you're judging their learning, are you largely judging whether they kept up with it and if they felt good about it? Because to me, again, the way I grew up, it's kind of learning for learning's sake. It's fun. So you like to do it and they're nice benefits, but you're not learning because you need these 10 facts. You need to hold on to them. You're learning because learning is fun and it makes your life better overall. Kind of like a glow of being curious about things is wonderful if you have the time and the right mindset. Is that what you're kind of judging the mindset or are you really kind of have some practical things you lock into? Cause I like just the fact that they, they felt better after this period, or do you, how do you judge that they're just, how do you judge their learning? Is it based on their subjective answers or are you really trying yeah. to look for objective things? Um, so, I mean, these are classrooms. We create classrooms um, and the teachers give homework and stuff. They aren't necessarily like graded. They receive like feedback and everything. Yeah. Um, and we do have like, a beginning of class, like, where are you guys at? Like, if they're learning Spanish, for example, mm -hmm. um, how do they answer these 10 questions? And then at the end, they get the same 10 questions. And how do they answer these in Spanish? Um, and so we do have markers of improvement, but we aren't sending people home with, like, an A plus and stuff like that. Um, if they're learning painting, we have them paint the same picture on the first day of class that they paint on the last day of class. And we have pictures of improvement, um, so we can do side-by-side -side comparisons be like, whoa, okay, this person can <laughs> paint now after 12 weeks of like two-hour classes, you know, once a week. So um, we do have markers of improvement, um, but we really emphasize with um, our participants that you get out of this what you put in, in terms of what you're learning. Um, our hope is that, you know, you'll be happy at the end of this because we're providing all of this to you for free and we want you to um, have fun um, and you know get out of it what you want um, but our, our main goal is to see how this affects your cognition and your executive functioning and your memory and stuff like that so we t spend a lot of time picking um, courses mm -hmm. and topics that have um uh, connections with executive functioning um, and um, yeah, improvements in memory and stuff like that. So we do, we don't just randomly pick classes. We pick ones that in the literature have been linked to improve specific cognitive functions. So then if but, you checked them over the weeks, you could see that there'd been some improvement as they learned this thing they wanted to learn yeah. anyway. Yeah, so yeah. we take, um, we have cognitive assessments. We run before they start the classes, the same week they start the classes. Um, in our published literature, we do halfway through the classes, a cognitive assessment. And then we'll, right when the classes end at that 12-week mark, um, and then we do three, six, and 12-month follow-ups. Um, so we're collecting a ton of data on the cognitive assessments. Um, and we also collect their well-being um, self-reported well-being measures, um, growth mindset measures, um, functional independence measures, um, all sorts of, we have tons of data, <laughs> so much that we can't publish it all in one paper. Um, but, and it takes a long time to analyze, um, such as the nature of research, but um, really exciting, um, positive things. The, the downside is 
the time and the accessibility and the availability to everyone. One, it's only in English. And we're in Southern California, huge, diverse population that we cannot access. Um, We don't provide transportation um, out of, you know, we it's not in our budget right now and stuff like that. So there are tons of limitations. Um, we were doing a more diverse, um, larger sample of people. We had 60 people um, in our learning intervention, but it ended early because of COVID. Um, so I'm hoping to bring people in to see for a cognitive assessment um, to compare to their before the classes started cognitive assessment, but we weren't even able to collect you know right when covid hit like where were they at at the end of this like um sudden shutdown you know because we couldn't you know and i didn't want to do it either you know a two-week lockdown make it six months you know i would stay home (laughs) right Um, exactly and we're working with a high-risk population in general many of our participants already had health concerns so um you know so we do we have their classroom <laughs> markers, you know, the teachers teach and do their regular thing, whatever they feel is best for their classroom and their um, students. And then we have the researcher side of things where we bring people in for the cognitive assessments and survey measures and stuff like that. Um, so it's kind of, it's multi-pronged in our approach. Um, it's very time consuming and expensive and not accessible to everyone. And that's something that we're hoping to bridge over time. Maybe that I'd like to, because we kind of started talking about um, the pop- the underrepresented populations that Tanya had been working with. And so, Tanya, I am curious, maybe this last question would be about, there's a huge kind of cottage industry growing up there about smartphone apps and web apps and all kinds of services to help people who are of means to make their brains better, so improve your neuroplasticity and make your learning better. So all those things are out there and there's companies now making, you know, millions and millions of dollars trying to make people. Those aren't founded on science. By the way. <laughs> <But> <laughs> they have no your... literature supporting them just as a, That's as perfect. a disclaimer. Okay. So they're out there kind of, they're like the initial, whatever. I don't care about them. They're kind of like snake oil. Look, it sounds good. If it makes you feel better, wonderful, but there's no proof that this works, but Hey, you're making a bunch of money convincing people. If you do this app once a day or twice a day or whatever, it'll make you smarter. This is more grounded stuff. And it's focused on an underrepresented population at the end of the day. If there is science, I mean, well, do you, do you ever worry? Like most of the stuff will just get picked up by sort of for-profit interests or like, because rich people always want to be smarter and rich people always want to stay younger, longer, and they have the money to spend on all the things. Or do these interventions feel like they, uh, none of the interventions sound like they have to be just for the rich necessarily. A little extra money into certain populations would probably help. But I don't know. Do you ever think, oh, the stuff's just going to get co-opted and it's going to wind up on some app someday? Well, another thing that came to mind when you're talking about like an app we need to think about technology and that being another barrier for low-income minority populations. There's that digital divide going on. So I think that this is going to hopefully be more of a community approach where communities themselves embed this research and have uh, classes available for their communities, right? Especially like in Spanish for Latinx older adults and that are flexible for them to join, right? Because this intervention is not uh, necessarily getting rid of those barriers forever for them, right? It's just during the period of the intervention or trying to link them up to other resources. But hopefully we can make current learning programs that are aimed for uh, older adults aware, more aware of these barriers so that they implement tools that help them bring in more minority low-income populations. That's that's the hopeful goal that would come out of this. Now, I don't know if other like companies would try to implement this uh, sure. part of uh, to make money or whatnot, but if they do, I hope that it's it still has a good outcome at the end of the day and that they do keep in mind that they have low resources and that they are helpful instead of, you know, making them pay high fees or whatnot, because that's, that would not happen. If they're low income, they're not going to pay a chunk of money to learn new abilities because they just don't have the money to do so. So I'm hoping that the outcome is a good one. (laughs) 
Yeah, a lot of the conversations that happen in our lab right now amongst um, our PI, Rachel Wu, and, and us as researchers, the grad students, um, is the next steps and the applicability of our science. Um, and yeah, definitely linking up with community centers, working with counties, which is something that we've been working on um, with our local county um, and um, on bridging like the digital divide and um, working with nonprofits are steps where that's probably where our research is heading in terms of like disseminating this information yeah. and making it accessible to everyone. Um, there are so many more gaps to fill in, um, specifically with like Tanya's research and stuff. Um, and we're really excited for the next steps, um, but we're still kind of opening the door and dipping our toes in the water to kind of put together two very different <laughs> um, uh, analogies. But um, yeah, so, I mean, we we hope that no one skews um, our information um, too much, but through, you know, um, outreach like this and talks um, at um, aging conferences, the Gerontology Society conferences, for example, and um, any community events that we go to is how we share this information and make sure that it's um, sort of not filtered, but um, more or less translated into more of a lay person. Um, like, what is, what do you mean by cognitive functions? What do you mean by executive functionings? What are functional independent? What are these terms? So yeah. um, we try to make sure that we're conveying that information um, more plainly, like, hey, this, we've improved people, people have shown improvement in their memories and their ability to uh, switch back and forth between tasks and stuff like that. Um, and it, it doesn't apply to everyone, you know, these are averages, but um, yeah, we're really hopeful and we hope that our, our information never gets um, put into the wrong words, <laughs> right. so to speak, um, to manipulate people, because that's not the the basis of our science. Um, and Dr. Rachel Liu does a great job of making sure that if people want to use this information, that it goes through us, um, that we see where it's going and making sure that they aren't sharing the wrong information for profit and stuff. It's solely just to share the information and so that people can take steps on their own if they want to, um, if they don't have the means to come to UCR um, to be a part of an intervention or it's the middle of a pandemic and they need to do things at home. Um, so, yeah. Is there, have either of you, so from a, from a personal level in doing this research and thinking, thinking about learning, has it probably made you hopeful? It sounds like it possibly has made you hopeful. Hey, when I get older, God willing, I'm older. Uh, I won't have, I might not have these problems. What are, is there any way you learn now or some way you think about your brain differently or a habit you've added because of what you've learned about seeing older people sort of improve these learning outcomes? Mm, I know for me, um, I've been more mindful about implementing a growth mindset of telling myself, um, I'm not good at this yet. Um, okay. With a little bit, because that's something that um, is really important because challenging yourself to learn something new you hit you're doing okay in the beginning and then you hit a wall yeah like two weeks in three weeks in be like okay you have to power through that um the other thing is that when I'm speaking with my parents who are in their 60s or my grandparents who are in their 80s um you know you hear that like ah, I'm too old for that or ah like yeah. I don't need to know that I'm gonna die soon anyway and I'm like stop first of all you're not allowed to die and then <laughs> second of all like why why and kind of like challenging them on that um on the why part because um even my sister who's uh lives in San Francisco her children are going to um like a Cantonese school and so I'm like hey are you gonna try and learn Cantonese and eventually Mandarin when they transition to that she's like no like you lose that ability at like two years old I'm like sister, hey, like, literally the research that I do proves otherwise, like you won't be perfect at it, but you can learn this language, like, right. you know, so really challenging people on those um, belief systems of I can't, or my brain can't do that. Um, and it's like, hey, neuroplasticity is definitely a thing. Um, so just trying to affect the people around me um, as much as possible to uh, challenge them a little bit in those beliefs. That's 
really what I've gotten most out of the research. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to learn new things, but in a PhD program, your time is limited. <laughs> um, but um, like Rachel, for example, paints, she plays piano, she's learning how to swim. She is constantly, and now she has a baby. And so she's doing this whole thing um, with her baby as well, learning her husband's German. She's learning German. Um, so like all of these things. So she's really applying the research, right? Um, and I mean, I, you know, I hopefully Tanya and I will eventually have time if we want to do those things, to do those things and learn new things. But um, that's the most doable aspect for me <laughs> in my daily life is to challenge people on those belief systems. Yeah, definitely. I would agree uh, that what this research has done for me, same thing, trying to keep more of a growth mindset myself and be motivated to maybe later on find the time to learn new abilities. And it does give me hope. I'm like, okay, because my grandfather, I mean, he wasn't really diagnosed, but you could see like he would forget our names and he would just kind of hallucinate a little bit. And that's how he ended up passing away, unfortunately. And I've always been scared of that uh, because I saw it in my with my own eyes. And this has given me hope that if I just uh, stimulate my brain and stay <laughs> cognitively engaged, I could age successfully, hopefully. And just as Leah mentioned, when I talked to my parents, I'm like, "Well, you should you should learn English. Yeah, try to try to learn uh, more English because they're not they're Spanish speakers." Yeah. And uh, I'm proud of them because they have actually done a very good job at engaging and trying to learn English, even with their very VC schedules that they have as working the whole day. So that makes me really, really happy. And also um, I pass on whatever information I get whenever I can to my family members and people that I know. And it makes me happy that, that there is hope out there. <laughs> and with something that's... Uh, in a way, uh, better than maybe taking some magical pill or something like that, right? Uh, as easy as if we're physically, you know, exercising, which is promoted and promoted with research, this is the same thing, but exercising your brain. And I think it's, it's really cool. And um, I hope that we find even more interesting findings and that we get to do a lot more with it. <laughs> 